Welcome to season two of Deconstructing the Myth, a podcast for those deconstructing American evangelical Christianity. This season, I, Elizabeth Mall, and Jenny White will dive into the theology and history behind confusing and controversial Bible passages. We hope to be a resource for you on your journey, no matter where you come from or where you land. Good evening, Jenny. Good evening. For today's game of Is It the Bible, you are quizzing me. And what is today's topic? So today's topic is, is it the Bible or the Chronicles of Narnia? Ooh. Okay. I've read the Chronicles of Narnia through one time. All all seven books? But it's all of them one time. Okay. I actually haven't. But it's been a minute. Okay. It's been, I would think I was like a senior though in high school. So... We'll see about this. (laughs) Okay, I'm ready. All right. One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Well, okay, now I'm doubting myself because I I feel like the friend that sticks closer, the brother, definitely is in the Bible. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, is that first part in the Bible? I'm just going to go with it. Let's say Bible. You are correct. That is from Proverbs 18.24. Starting off strong. Okay. Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Number two. A noble friend is the best gift. A noble enemy is the next best. Oh. Noble enemy? I don't feel like I've ever read that. Let's Let's do Chronicles of Narnia. Yes, it is from the Chronicles of Narnia, and I did not write down which book it is from, so if there are listeners who actually know the Chronicles of Narnia really well, you can let us know if you yeah, just happen to. Yeah, please do. Yeah. Send me a DM. Okay, you're doing really well, so I, do you feel like the pressure is mounting a little bit now that you have two right? Well, no, I wasn't until you said that. <laughs> now I am. <laughs> Trying to get into your head. Okay. <laughs> Number three. That world is ended as if it had never been. Let the race of Adam and Eve take warning. Adam and Eve are in there, but mm. the race of Adam and Eve. I feel like this is in the last book. I'm going to go with Narnia. Oh, you're correct again. I can't trick you. I guess. Maybe I'm remembering more than I thought, but I do remember thinking there was something <laughs> very bible about the end, which, of course, the whole mm-hmm. thing's like based on the yeah. Bible. So I guess there, there are a that. lot of really bible things where they say things like Aslan, and so like, that'd be a dead giveaway. Yeah. So I couldn't use those quotes. <laughs> All right, number four. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. Um, Narnia? Mm, Ecclesiastes. Oh, okay. All right, here is the last one. Okay, I'm ready. With a word, he called up the wind, an ocean storm, towering waves. Oh, Man, um, I mean, that feels a little Joby. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. okay, I, I guess I'll just go with Job Bible. It's Psalm, but you got it. <laughs> I get there. I just get there the wrong way. <laughs> no, you did. I think you only got, you only missed one, which is really good. I can't believe that. The last one I did, I did not do so well. And so this is kind of redeeming, which is great. Yeah. All right, so today we are talking about the baptism of the dead, which is not something that was really on my radar until 
it was a topic this season. Yeah. And I actually kind of confused it with a few other things. I was, I, I thought to myself, isn't that what Bethel was accused of doing? And it's not, actually. Uh, no, I think they were trying to raise someone from the dead. They weren't baptizing, I believe. There was something. And I kind of looked and, and I was seeing that potentially that's um, kind of a rumor that got out of control. That would be mm. an interesting thing to do a, um, an episode on. But yeah. anyways, it wasn't this. I, I emailed one of my Catholic friends and I said, tell me about you know, your belief in the baptism of the dead. And she said, well, we don't believe that. We don't <laughs> adhere to that. So she's like, here's an article on why we don't. And so that was helpful. Yes, um, absolutely. But it was just kind of interesting how uh, how I am really going through this along with our listeners for basically the first time. So yeah, it's definitely interesting. And it actually, even though on its head, maybe it's not... Mm-hmm the most um, unsettling passage, I think it brings up some really big issues, which we're going to touch on definitely yes, today. So yes. um, why don't we start out? Why don't you read what verse we are dealing with today and give us some of the background on it? Yeah, absolutely. So before I read the verse, this is really only in one place in the Bible. And so just as like something that I've been trying to pay more attention to is if I just see one verse in the Bible and it seems to maybe say one thing, but nowhere else in the Bible is it talked about Mm. that can be kind of like a red flag as in maybe we're not interpreting this correctly or that sort of thing. So uh, that's something not finding really any other mention of it in the Bible was kind of a a red flag to me to pay a little more attention and dig a little deeper. Mm. So with that introduction, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 15, 29, and this is from the ESV. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Hmm. And it kind of ends with that rhetorical question. Yeah. And before we go on, I think we should also say in this section of 1 Corinthians, Paul is trying to prove that resurrection happens because, Mm -hmm. you know, some people were not believing resurrection could happen to Jesus or to anyone else. So this this verse is kind of couched in there as sort of um, an evidence for that. Yeah, so what did you find as far as what might have been going on around the time this passage was written and, yeah, what what they could be referring to? Yeah, so this is a gray area as far as scholarship is concerned. There isn't a lot of proof exactly as to what was going on culturally or as, like, maybe even a way to worship other gods or is this a practice that new Christians were doing? It's all kind of unclear. Uh, some people say, oh, we think there's evidence that maybe new Christians were doing this. Other people say no. So you kind of mm-hmm. have to take it with a grain of salt either way. Okay. Um, but some scholars do think that uh, baptisms for the dead were performed by New Testament Christians. There's evidence that other sects, even other maybe like knockoff r- Christians... I don't know. <laughs> knockoff Christian. Knock off. Is, like is that what I am, Jenny? Am I an off-brand Christian? <laughs> I can't think of it like like the the non like you know an offshoot, but that but what came out was knockoff. So, <laughs> anyways, so the the mainstream church may categorize these people as heretical, but mm-hmm. I prefer the softer sounding term of knockoff Christian. Knock so Christian. Okay. Okay. They may also have been doing this. 
Okay. And so, really, the reason that they were uh, baptizing the dead is uh, a belief that you had to be physically baptized in order to enter heaven. Hmm. And so, having someone stand in for you and accept baptism on your behalf is a way to allow the person who's already deceased access to heaven. So, that's why it's kind of a big deal. Hmm. Um especially like relatives who may have died maybe before hearing the gospel or things like this. Like you can see how if people believed that about baptism, it would really create quite the issue and Mm -hmm. they wouldn't want to take any chances. Other than that kind of slight indication that this may have been going on. And part of it, we, I mean, even just from Paul's writings, he talked about it. So it seems like maybe this was happening, but from writings of the early church fathers, this hasn't been referenced. So For most of Christianity, no one practiced baptisms of the dead. The church condemned baptisms for the dead during the councils of Carthage Mm. in the 1490s AD. So it it must have been a kind of recurring theme enough for them to address it in a council, but it was never seen as uh, a core tenet of Christianity. That's interesting that they Mm -hmm. felt the need to address it. Yeah, like yeah, formally. even 400 years yeah. later. So something must, have, something must have been going on, even if we don't currently have record of what exactly was happening. Hmm. So jumping quite ahead, all the way to the Middle Ages, um, which this does not really surprise me. I don't know a lot about the Middle Ages, um, but I do know that they had a lot of really, I guess, unique takes on a lot of religious practices. Kind of superstitious. Um, Would you say superstitious? Yeah, kind of like superstition. It's kind of fun to look back on now, but it, not so much, I think, if you were living in the Middle Ages and maybe didn't have access to uh, your own Bible or being able to read mm, or those sort of things. I think yeah. that really can make, make it more likely to kind of struggle with superstition. But I found it very interesting that uh, – uh, they had their own version of baptisms for the dead, which is a little bit different, I think, than like maybe what Paul was talking about because they would almost like not exactly uh, say I'm being baptized on behalf of this person, but they trick, quote unquote, like the priest into like allowing a dead person to be baptized. So what they would do is well, if a person who was recently deceased, who maybe was not a weaver or hadn't been baptized, a Christian would crawl under the bed of the dead person and then the priest would come. So the priest obviously knew this person was dead, but um, the priest would ask if the dead person would like to be baptized and forgiven of their sins. And then the person under the bed would answer affirmative for them. What? And then the priest what? would baptize the dead body. Interesting. Interesting. So that was kind of a way to be like, well, we're not exactly baptizing, I guess, like on behalf of this person. The person in themselves is getting baptized. We're just talking for them interesting huh mm-hmm. i feel like that's almost sounds like something in a book or a movie <laughs> so currently the latter-day saints the church of the latter-day saints is the only widely recognized religion that practices baptism of the dead which i think maybe i knew before researching this like i knew a little bit about but i didn't really fully understand what was going on and i don't know like is that something that you kind of knew about Latter-day Saints? I had no idea. As I, I kind of said in our introduction, I thought this was mm-hmm. a Catholic thing. So okay. I was actually yeah. really surprised <laughs> to find out about that. Yeah. So, so a Latter-day Saints believe that people who have died can be baptized by proxy, which is kind of what we already talked about, uh, which is, allows them to be members of the LDS Church after their death if they've been baptized in this way. So... 
According to LDS thought, if people do not accept their views in life, they are sent to a spirit prison where they have another chance to convert. So one article I read kind of said they had basically had like spirit missionaries who can go to this spirit prison and share about the LDS faith. And then if people convert, they still have to be physically baptized because that's one of Mm. the core beliefs of LDS doctrine. So this is one of the reasons that the LDS are very interested in genealogy, which makes mm-hmm. perfect sense because they, if they can be baptized on behalf of their ancestors who maybe uh, weren't members of the church, then they could all be together in heaven. And mm. I think I also knew that uh, there's just a lot of genealogical research going on, especially if you're LDS. And I just thought that was really cool because I find that sort of thing very interesting in mm-hmm. history and family and all of that. So... Yeah, I think that's a, a great thing to do, honestly, just to know more about where you came from. I think that's really neat. Um, but it also makes sense that that would be very important to them if by doing that and being baptized uh, by proxy, they can be with their family forever. Yeah. So. so I wanted to read a little bit about why Latter-day Saints do really hold on to this as mm-hmm. a practice that should still exist because predominantly Christians do not believe it should besides them so president david o mckay wrote not a few commentators have tried to explain away this passage's true significance but its context proves plainly that in the days of the apostles there existed the practice of baptism for the dead that is living persons were immersed in water for and in behalf of those who were dead not who were dead to sin but who had passed to the other side Honestly, I get where he's coming from. Oh, yeah. If you just read that, it seems like a very plain reading of the verse. It does. It honestly seems to me that if you're going to say Paul was not in favor of it, Mm -hmm. you're reading into it. But that's, like you said, a plain reading. And I do like what you said at the start that we kind of have to be cautious when something's only mentioned one time. Mm -hmm. We have to be cautious about building an entire you know, doctrine around anything that's only mentioned one time. Brigham Young University professor Robert Millett said, many non-Latter-day Saint scholars believe that in 1 Corinthians, Paul was denouncing or condemning the practice of baptism for the dead as heretical. This is a strange conclusion since Paul (laughs) uses the practice to support the doctrine of the resurrection. In essence, Paul is saying, why are we performing baptism in behalf of our dead If, as some propose, there will be no resurrection of the dead. If there is to be no resurrection, would not such baptisms be a waste of time? (laughs) And that's Mm -hmm. from A Different Jesus, a book. Um, So Mormons believe that we are going to great lengths to say that the passage does not mean that Paul condoned it. And I can kind of see that. that makes sense to me. I mean, I see that. Yeah. One final quote from FairLatterdaySaints.org said, There have been attempts to shrug this off as a reference by Paul to a practice he does not condone, but only uses to support the doctrine of the resurrection. These claims are indefensible. Paul's statement makes no sense unless the practice was valid, and the saints in Corinth knew it. This is easily demonstrated if we just imagine a young Protestant who doubts the resurrection, who goes to his pastor with his problem. The pastor answers him, saying, But what about the Mormon to baptize for the dead? If the dead rise not at all... Why are they then baptized for the dead? You know what the young doubter would say. He would say, Pastor, they're Mormons. What's your point? (laughs) Which I actually think that's a fair analogy, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, 
because they would assert that Paul already confirms that believers can act vicariously for others. Um, Mm. And actually, we do see this train of thought in other places from Paul, as Mm -hmm. in 1 Corinthians 7.14. Because in that verse, it says, For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, I have heard this explained other ways. Um, besides saying yeah yeah, besides saying you know you believe and now you're saved and now that means your family will be so I've heard it said no this means your influence will spread through your Mm -hmm. family you know etc but again with kind of the plain reading it does seem to maybe lean that way that's I, I do think that that is not an out of the world implication you know what I mean no, no. It's interesting that I have always interpreted it differently, I think, because that's how I've been taught it, you know. Yeah. Um, but if you just read it, I see that it makes sense that way. Like, it, it's not crazy at all. Yeah, right. Were you kind of taught the same thing as me that it was the husband's influence? Or no, no. The unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. So sort of the influence of the person who believes. Is that what you were taught? Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking, so I'm reading where it says, otherwise your children your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So I always thought of it as only one spouse accepted Christ and was, and was living a Christian life and their other spouse wasn't. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's some concern of, well, um, especially I'm thinking about like adoption laws of the time and um, how important it was for the Jewish people that they maintained that lineage and that was a very big part of their identity. So I always thought of it, I thought of it, yeah, influence, yes, but more so the emphasis being on your children can still be brought up in a Christian tradition and it doesn't change their uh, their status, I guess, is kind of how I look at that. Interesting. Okay. So so getting back then to our verse in question about mm-hmm. baptism yes. of the dead, what is your favorite theological explanation if it's not that we should be baptizing the ourselves for the dead i guess or yes you know i don't even know how to say it but what yeah what do you lean towards theologically yes so i do not believe in baptisms for the dead or on behalf of the dead my kind of belief is that that paul was talking about christians martyrs those who had died before us so um so you may see someone's uh, sacrifice for christ or be inspired by their life and that kind of spurs you on to do the same. And so you're being baptized due to their influence on you, I guess. So you mm-hmm. see this example and then they're no longer with us, but you're touched by that. You're influenced by it. And then you become a Christian and follow in their footsteps. Mm-hmm. And so there is this short paragraph I found that kind of talks about why this is a probable explanation. And it says that Paul's audience would be familiar with Alexander the Great's conquest of the world. And Alexander's army employed the phalanx. I think I'm saying that correctly. I don't know if you know. I don't. Um, Okay. We'll go with it. it. (laughs) We'll we'll go with phalanx and then we can always adjust if someone lets me know. Um, uh, This is something that people are probably familiar with, this formation. A phalanx is when you'd have men in a line carrying carrying very large shields. And then you'd have a man right behind who would be carrying a sphere, a sphere, a spear. And uh, would rest the spear on the shoulder of the man holding the shield. And so when they're in this very interlocking grid like this, they can really just kind of move forward as a group and kind of just like 
plow down people that they're running into. And then if the person holding the shield is killed or injured and drops the shield, then the person right behind them immediately picks it back up and keeps the formation going. And Mm. so you have people coming in behind and stepping into the shoes of those who no longer can carry the shield. So in the same way, new believers take the place of believers who have died and we're just like continually going forward. And so, so is it almost like the new believer is getting baptized then? Uh, so the way I'm interpreting the analogy is there are established believers who are, who have the shield and are going forward. And as they pass away, um, there are just people in the ranks behind them stepping in to take their place. And I don't think it means that like a one for one necessarily, but just that through their actions, it's, it's, it's expanding the growth of Christianity. And so more believers are being baptized and are taking the place of those who have died. So it wasn't someone getting baptized in order to ensure someone else's salvation who had died. No. Yes. Okay. I had not thought of it that way at all, (laughs) but I hadn't (laughs) thought of it a lot until we did this, which is partly why I'm really enjoying the series because it's, yeah, it's opening up a lot. (laughs) So if you landed on anything or, uh, do you have, I guess it could be concluding thoughts for you. Yeah. It's funny because I don't know that I have a lot of concluding thoughts, but this spurred on a bunch of questions Mm -hmm. about what is the role of baptism? What is the role, you know, and we're going to get into that in a second. Um, And it's, yeah, it's opened a whole new world of questions, which (laughs) is funny. That's a funny thing about deconstruction. It does that for us a Mm -hmm. lot of the time. And sometimes it's unsatisfying, (laughs) but it is a good thing. And so before we get to that, I'll, I'll just point out, a lot of Christians do have reasons that they believe this is not a literal, I'm getting baptized on your behalf, so you are saved. Just like what you said. That's one interpretation I actually hadn't mm-hmm. heard of. But one theologian, D.A. Carson, explains why he believes the assumption is wrong that Paul was endorsing this. He writes, the most okay. plausible interpretation of this verse is that some in Corinth were getting baptized vicariously, which means in the place of others, mm-hmm. for the dead. Several factors, however, put this into perspective. Although Paul does not explicitly condemn the practice, neither does he endorse it. Several writers have offered the following analogy. Imagine a Protestant writing, why do they then pray for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Which is something that Catholics do. No one would take this as an endorsement of the practice of praying for the dead. It is a criticism of the inconsistency of praying for the dead while holding that the dead do not rise. And so I can Mm -hmm. see that explanation. It does kind of make me think of the LDS argument above Mm -hmm. that we already said that why are you bringing up something that you don't believe is credible, though? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I see that. I also think there's a lot of, there are a lot of instances where Paul is saying something and he'll reference something that he's not endorsing, but he references it. That is true. That is true because he does reference a lot of cultural happenings because his mm-hmm. audience knew what he was talking about. Uh, um, right, definitely. And even in a way to 
spread the gospel. We read that in Acts, you know, quoting secular poets mm-hmm. and secular religion as a as kind of a gateway into dialogue. So it's not yeah. out of the realm of possibility that that's what is happening here. And that's, I mean, I that's kind of what I go to as well, I think. I mean, on top of what I kind of said in my analogy that I found, but I do think Paul is referencing something that's happening, but he does that so often that mm. I don't take it as him necessarily uh condoning something yeah and i do think it's also interesting never in scripture is there a command to anyone to baptize the dead so i think that's important that's actually a huge thing i think yeah because if it were so important i think it would be clearly stated yeah so i do think you know if anyone's (laughs) thinking oh no should i be doing this for for granny you know (laughs) I don't know no, necessarily. No, unless you're LDS, no Christian religion recognizes that, that I could find at all. Yeah. So probably not, unless you tend to be, like I said, LDS or um, agree with their views. Can I just spend one second to say, I always get confused if it's LDS or LSD and there's a big difference. There's a big difference. I love how confident you are. <laughs> you know you got it right. <laughs> Oh man. Okay, okay, moving on. I did want to talk a moment about Catholics because as I said, I thought they did this and I was incorrect. However, they do pray for the dead. And I think it's Okay, that's even though it is interesting and it's a little bit of a side trail, but it is related. It's it's related and I am very interested as I don't know. I'm I'm excited to hear. Yes, and I'm just going to give a brief introduction, you know, but if anyone's interested, there's an abundance of resources online and you can check our show notes for some more. But the Catholic teaching regarding prayers for the dead is bound up inseparably with the doctrine of purgatory. There is kind of a misunderstanding that purgatory is this place where you get a second chance. And she said, mm-hmm. the idea is you were, you are going to make it to heaven. Like that's already known about you but you're not quite making the cut i'm probably not saying that in the right right words but you still need to be sanctified maybe that's closer to the right words um it's this idea you are going to make it to heaven there's still some transformation that needs to happen so purgatory is a place for that but anyway that's kind of where the idea of praying for the dead comes from which makes Mm. a lot of sense if you think about someone now who's having a hard time or who isn't living you know, their best life in Christ, you know, we mainstream Christians would say, yeah, it's perfectly appropriate to pray for them. So their idea is even if you're dead, I'm still going to pray for you. So I found an interesting source um, from (laughs) catholic.com, which is really, it's so straightforward that that's where it's from, but it has a lot of really interesting information from a Catholic viewpoint. And It was said here that it's probable that the practice in question was something in itself legitimate and that Paul gives it a nod of approval. Um, From what I understand, most Catholics would likely fall along the lines of how Jim Blackburn describes it in this quote. He says, it is not clear that Paul envisioned one person being baptized in the place of a dead person. He may have meant something else, such as being baptized in order to be united with one's Christian loved ones who had died. So it's this idea of we're not sure. It could be legitimate. It could not be. It doesn't really affect our day-to-day practice. Right. It's kind of the idea. I do want to shift the conversation a little bit, though, because 
this has been a fascinating talk for me, a fascinating time researching, but I had this funny feeling while I was doing it because it felt, uh, it kind of felt like digging in the weeds about the Bible, which we are doing, mm-hmm. but in a way that really reminded me of being fully convinced of evangelical train of thought of this idea mm-hmm. that the Bible has, you know, all the answers for how I need to be living right now. And I just felt weird about it. And I started thinking, why am I feeling kind of off about this particular episode? And I think there are a few bigger questions tied to this topic that honestly, we don't have time to do justice to here. Um, But they're common questions that people do ask when they're deconstructing and they Mm -hmm. can come from verses like this. And those questions are, what is salvation? Who gets to have it? What role does baptism play in it? You know, because... One thing I have personally been wrestling with is this idea that we were taught salvation means you don't go to hell when you die, you go to heaven. Uh And for me, I'm looking at how Jesus spoke in the gospels. I'm thinking, well, the kingdom of heaven is here. So salvation has Mm -hmm. at least partially something to do with the current state of life. And And how much, you know, is it all about the current state? Is it not? Um, The hell question for me, we're going to get into hell in in some future episodes. But the hell question for me, I think that's huge. I think for a lot of people, that's the one where their faith will either make it or break it. And their view of God. Because, you know, there's a lot that you have to, in my opinion, sacrifice to still hold to the traditional view of hell. And I don't know that you would agree with me on that. Um, But to me, it seems, you know, there's just a lot of problems with it um, Mm -hmm. as far as how do we think of God still and how do we think of what's actually just and what's actually good. And Mm -hmm. I know in season one, even our first episode of season one, the first episode of the whole podcast, we get into why it's um, problematic for a lot of people. Now, getting back to the point of baptism, Baptism is also a subject that Christians are really divided on. You know, it's this idea yes. that is this a, uh, as I was taught, this is an outward sign of an inner decision to believe in Christ. Yeah. That's what I was taught. I'd be super curious to hear how Anglicans thought of it. Um, yeah, actually, that's about it, word for word. I mean, it's is an that outward it? sign is of that? an inward change. Yeah. I thought maybe they'd I think be that more... came from a catechism. I'm sure, I'm guessing it's probably very familiar to a lot of people who kind of went through like church school. Interesting. Okay, but then there's... Others who believe baptism, physical baptism is required for salvation. So this is from Catholic.com. I'm telling you, that's the place to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and the question asks is, how can the Catholic Church teach that it's possible for a non-baptized person to be saved, which is in their catechism, yet at the same time teach mm-hmm. that baptism is necessary for salvation? Isn't that a contradiction? Mm-hmm. And they say the short answer is no, it's not a contradiction. The key is in paragraph 1257 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It says, God has bound salvation to the sacrament of baptism, but he himself is not bound by his sacraments. What this Uh means is that the only ordinary means that the church knows of by which a person is to be saved is the sacrament of baptism. This is all that has been revealed to us. Therefore, those to whom this necessary means of salvation has been revealed are bound to use it. But those who are not responsible for their ignorance of this revelation will not be held accountable. So that's an interesting thing. I've heard I've heard this phrase used a lot, the ordinary means or the uh-huh. ordinary way. And so they're saying we know that baptism means you're saved. Is the, I think I'm understanding this correctly. Mm-hmm. But potentially God will also administer the grace of salvation 
in other ways. We're just not going to make a statement on it is what I understand that to mean. So just nevertheless, I guess for me, maybe you and I can just have a little chat here mm-hmm. from one... Well, I would say I'm still in many ways still deconstructing. I don't know that you necessarily are, although you are always open to rethinking things. Um, I try but, to be. Yes, but I think for me, one of the things when it when it comes to salvation and baptism and this whole passage about do we need to be baptized for our dead, to me it seems like there are still things you must do to be saved. Mm. Even though we're not saying there's specific actions when people say, you know, there's nothing you have to do. Just believe Jesus did it all. It seems kind mm-hmm. of an, uh, unacceptable to me because belief is the hardest thing of all to do, to accomplish. You know, y- you can't make yourself believe something you don't believe is true. I tried that with Santa Claus as a kid and it didn't work. <laughs> yeah, and it doesn't work. And it, it, it's just very stress inducing. I think maybe we share this. It's like, well, if I have to believe, but then I have these these doubts in the back of my mind, does that mean I'm not believing enough and then I'm not mm. saved? And then there's a fear of hell and that's where yeah. I go immediately. And I, yes, you may yeah. share a little bit of that. And so that just feels very unacceptable to me as well. Yes. I, I just, I always think about, you know, if someone rejects the gospel message, rejects Jesus because they were abused by someone who preached that message. Mm-hmm. And let's say, you know, the Christian idea of Jesus and God being all good, you know, that's true. I don't know. It just seems like it actually would not be just to condemn them for a decision made on wrong information. That's my thought, you know, and now the Calvinists would say, well, God knew they would do that. They're predestined Mm -hmm. to do that, which I also think has a multitude of problems. I think I talked about earlier how other views of, of how people, end up in hell especially if they didn't really have a chance it's like well they were predestined i mean i to me that sacrifices god's goodness and our calvinist friends would not agree with that our more reformed mm-hmm. friends would not but yeah. um but for me personally these days i am leaning more kind of universal salvation i don't know what that mm-hmm. looks like or what exactly that means but it just to me it seems like the only option that really doesn't sacrifice god's goodness or power um But that's where I am today. I always say, ask me next week and we'll see. Um, Mm -hmm. But one thing I wanted to bring up uh, before I get your thoughts on it is a lot of times when we base our ideas on what salvation is, you know, at least for me, the idea Mm -hmm. that you must just believe. I I looked up what verse was that because I remember hearing a verse and I was, I thought it was interesting. Acts Mm -hmm. 16, 31 through 32 says, this is when um, the jailer, asked Paul and Silas, uh, Mm -hmm. what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And I thought this was interesting because it kind of ties back to the idea of our problematic verse about doing something on behalf of someone else. Because at the start of this, it's very much the evangelical train of thought. Believe, you'll be saved. But then there's this tail end, you and your household. And it's like, how could you guarantee that their household would be saved by by one person's belief? You know, so it, it, it does kind of tie in the question of what is the message like what is the gospel exactly saying about salvation i never thought of it that way i always thought he was addressing the household like he's saying you and also your whole household should believe and be saved and so i don't know if looking at the original how it's originally written if that would give more clarity because i do know that where you place commas and those sort of things can change meanings yeah yeah that's definitely a fair point and that would be 
something that we could dig into, but that would require probably its own entire episode. So I guess my parting thoughts for today's topic on a completely personal note is that it makes me wonder if the church's fixation historically on baptism and all the different forms that has taken over the hundreds of years, hundreds and thousands of years, I wonder if that's sort of a collective trauma response to the cosmic threat of hell. And as we've just been dissecting this, I just really wonder if we need to take a step back first and say, hey, what's informing our interest in baptism and what was informing their interest in baptism, the people who wrote this, you know, who Paul was speaking about. And I don't know, is it coming from a place of loving God or is it coming from a place of fear, actually? That's, I guess, just the very deconstruction take on this whole topic. Baptism of the dead. It's kind of like opening a can of worms here. You open a can of worms. I think it really, I mean, it goes back to what, what deconstructing is. So for so many of us, deconstructing deals with salvation and hell and all these things. So you take something that seems like a little, a little thread and then you pull it and it really goes to these deeper, more critical issues. Exactly. And for our listeners, we are not going to leave you hanging. We have a few episodes focused around the topic of hell coming up starting next week. If this episode was meaningful to you, please consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash deconstructing the myth so that episodes like today's keep coming.